are some sick oysters. Just what made them sick and just how they are to be cured are questions that stumped an entire oyster industry. The trouble started down in Louisiana on the Gulf of Mexico where the Louisiana oyster fishermen claim that oil production was killing off the local oyster population. The oil companies didn't agree, but they decided to look into the matter. So they started what developed into a $2 million oyster research program. Every possibility was explored. After years of study and progress, the results were in. The test oysters showed no ill effects from oil, even under conditions which far exceeded those ever present during oil production. As a matter of fact, the test oysters were so happy, they brought forth new generations to share their luck. They never had it so good. This is ozone. The origins of the Louisiana oyster industry can be traced to the mid-19th century, when Croatian immigrants started harvesting and farming oysters. By the beginning of the next century, the southern state had already become one of the leading oyster producers in the U.S., Generations of Louisiana families worked in the oyster industry, and the oyster left an indelible mark on the state's culture, so much so that today an oyster shell is the official state gemstone of Louisiana. But at the peak of the Louisiana oyster industry back in the 1930s, oysters suddenly started dying on the shores. The local oystermen knew who to blame. The oil industry had just recently set up its camp in the Gulf of Mexico, when a state biologist concluded that the pollution caused by the oil companies was killing the oysters, the industry replied with its own science. That was the science you heard in the clip at the beginning of this episode. Just like the study, the film was produced back in the 1960s by the oil industry. But as you've come to know by now, listening to this podcast, this is not the first time science was used to convince society to accept potentially dangerous and harmful products and activities. Corporate funding for research was nothing new then, and it's still more than present today. It's one of the two main sources of funding alongside government support. This is not necessarily bad. It just means that more regulation is required so that corporations don't influence the outcome of the research. But multiple studies conducted in recent years concluded industry-sponsored studies tend to be biased in favor of the sponsor's products. A 2018 review of 36 such studies published by the University of Sydney found that corporate interests can drive research agendas away from questions that are most relevant for public health. In our previous episodes, you heard how experts' warnings about leaded gasoline were buried by science funded through the company that produced the gas. In this episode, you'll hear about the science that brought leaded gasoline down. This story is mostly about two men. The scientist who dared to confront the lead industry, Claire Cameron Patterson, and the man he went up against, a man who spent his entire life defending lead and gasoline, and whom you've come to know quite well by now, Robert Kehoe. And in Patterson, Kehoe had finally found his match. Claire Cameron Patterson didn't have much choice about becoming a chemist. His parents made sure of it. When his school in the small Iowa city of Mitchellville didn't have a laboratory, they helped him set up one in their basement. So when he graduated from high school at 16 and went to study chemistry, nobody was surprised. Nobody was surprised that he was really good at it as well. During World War II, Patterson, then a young scientist just out of school, 
was called up to work on the Manhattan Project. Patterson described it as evil later in his life. He spent the rest of his career making up for it. In his university years, Patterson got interested in another natural science, geology, but he couldn't abandon his first love, chemistry, so he did the only thing he could think of. In 1952, he started working at the California Institute of Technology, where he became a founding member of its geochemistry program. We live our history, study it, interpret its conditions and forces, make monuments to it, understand some of it. And one way or another, human history is recorded. But what is the meaning of valleys and streams? Are the rocks that form them only inert monuments to conditions and forces no longer existing? Do we merely guess at the history of the Earth? How does geology, the historical science, know how the face of the Earth took its features? Patterson's first great accomplishment came when he accurately calculated the exact age of the Earth. His measurement of 4.55 billion years has barely been approved upon since 1956. To measure the planet's age, he developed a dating method using lead. A big chunk of his research actually included measuring lead levels, and he did this across the globe. This is how he discovered that lead contamination was present everywhere. For example, he found that deep ocean water contained up to 20 times less lead than surface water. But what he didn't know was the origin of this massive pollution. So he started reading through lead-related research. Somebody's name kept popping up, Robert Kehoe. Throughout the previous 40 years, Kehoe had become the foremost expert on lead in the US, a title he didn't earn because of his extensive scientific credentials, but for the simple reason that he had the funding. You can't do research like this without money. But Kehoe's research was fully funded by the leaded gasoline industry, and the industry had the final say on what he was allowed to publish. Already at a first glance, Kehoe's numbers made no sense to Patterson, so he used his lead dating method to investigate what was really happening. Patterson traveled around the world digging for snow, old snow to be precise. Why did he do that? Well, in the polar regions, young snow settles on top of old ice. And by digging down, you can basically go back in time. The deeper you go, the older the ice is. Patterson harvested 4,000-year-old, 400-year-old, 200-year-old, and 30-year-old snow. The numbers he got told a story very different from what Kehoe was selling. Patterson found that lead concentrations had increased from below 0.001 micrograms of lead per kilo of ice in 800 BC to more than 0.2 in the 1960s. Or to put it more clearly, contemporary lead levels were more than 200 times higher than they were in the 1700s. And what was even more shocking, the sharpest rise occurred after 1940. It didn't take long before Patterson identified tetraethyl lead as the culprit. Now comes the interesting part. Patterson's project, the one where he went around measuring lead all over the world, was funded by the oil and gas industry. When he was looking for funding for his research, a colleague helped him get the money by convincing oil companies that Patterson's work would help them identify oil deposits. 
That was not exactly true, but now Patterson was going against the industry that financed his work. What was he going to do? Even early in his career, Patterson was known as an eccentric, a man completely dedicated to his science. He was so careful about possible contamination of his results that he created one of the first clean rooms. Clean rooms are those extremely well-isolated and deeply cleansed laboratories you've probably seen in movies. That's how much he cared about his work. When the oil industry realized that he was looking into lead, they offered to fund his other research. He rejected them. He wasn't about to get his research buried. Soon after, Patterson wrote a paper about his findings entitled Contaminated and Natural Lead Environments of Man, which set off a national discussion about air pollution. This is our earth, our home, our life. It's a finite thing, a sphere of specific size with certain basic resources distributed around its surface. There's just so much land, so much water, so much air. Yet our very existence depends on them. As we have progressed as a people, as we have had our children, built our homes, tilled our fields, erected our factories, and driven our cars, we have taken liberally of our Earth's resources. And we've scattered our waste products, often without wisdom or restraint, without consideration of the effects on the quality of our lives or the lives of our children. Of all the threats to our environment, air pollution is the most serious and perhaps the most difficult to solve. There are ways to restore the damaged land. We can purify our drinking water, but we must breathe the air as it comes to us. And every day it comes to us more heavily burdened with harmful and sometimes dangerous pollutants. The year was 1966. As air quality became a hot topic, both in the US and abroad, the US Senate held hearings on the Clean Air Act which was getting an update. The hearings had become the scene of Kehoe and Patterson's first public confrontation. Both men were invited to testify and present their cases. They were both questioned by Senator Edward Muskie of Maine, often referred to as the father of the 1960s environmental movement in America. Here's Muskie speaking in a video report prepared for the hearings. We must use the information we have gathered and the control equipment we have developed to prevent further contamination of the air we First up in the hot seat was Kehoe. He started off his testimony by humbly saying that his knowledge on the topic was so extensive that if he were to say everything he knew, quote, they would be there for the rest of the week, unquote. For Kehoe, there was no doubt. Lead in gasoline was not a threat. He said, no other hygienic problem in the field of air pollution has been investigated so intensively over such a prolonged period of time and with such definitive results. In the period between 1930 and 1960, just 30 years, the population of our country increased by half. The number of automobiles on our roads doubled. Our investment in industrial plants and equipment went up 500%. And our output of power to keep all this going rose 600%. 
Pressed with these numbers from the Senate report, Kehoe hit back with the results of a study done in Cincinnati. According to the study, lead levels in Cincinnati actually decreased over a period of 30 years. Muskie found this hard to believe, but Kehoe was not budging. Even when asked if he would support a non-toxic substitute for lead if one were to be discovered, he again answered that there was no reason to replace lead. Pushed repeatedly by Muskie, he refused to answer and said, maybe without being aware of the irony, that, quote, as a matter of principle, we must investigate every matter that we introduce into our environment, unquote. A week later, it was Patterson's turn to testify. Claire Patterson had the reputation of being very straightforward, some would say blunt. He came across as such in his testimony. First, he explicitly said that the sole goal of those rejecting the results of his research is to sell lead. Patterson then went after Kehoe's arguments. He said that the numbers in Cincinnati were false. Lead levels had increased, in fact. Kehoe neglected to mention that the study wasn't exactly scientifically sound. Early Cincinnati measurements included those taken from the city's industrial areas. The later samples just didn't include as many industrial sites, so higher lead levels recorded earlier weren't that much of a surprise. In the following years, under proper scientific scrutiny, most of Kehoe's studies would be disproven. Maybe Kehoe wasn't fully aware of how bad exhaust lead was. Maybe he just didn't understand how bad his scientific methods were. No matter what, he spent his long life convinced that he was right, so much so that before Patterson's article, which started all of this, came out, he was one of the people who supported its publication. Kehoe advocated for the paper to be accepted and wrote, I should let the man, with his obvious faults, speak in such a way as to display these faults. In the end, it was Kehoe whose faults were on display. After he came out swinging against lead, Patterson was refused contracts with many organizations. The oil industry worked hard to get others to rescind his grants. He was subjected to personal attacks. Nonetheless, he persevered. His work would prove to be the beginning of the end for lead and gasoline. Patterson didn't consider himself an environmentalist. He was just a scientist dedicated to his craft. But he did set a path for other scientists whose research didn't necessarily go along with what the industry wanted. Two of those scientists were Frank Sherwood Rowland and Mario Molina. Next on Ozone, the story of how hairsprays and deodorants almost destroyed the environment and the scientists who saved it just in the nick of time. Subscribe to Climate Solutions so you don't miss the next chapters of Ozone, the story of how we dealt with the biggest environmental disaster humanity encountered until climate change. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and wherever you get your podcasts. This was Climate Solutions from the European Investment Bank.